Hello and welcome to Cordial with Brett Crossley and Tom Bennett, the podcast where we mix and contemplate cordial conversations about the world, the people in it and their work. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Cordial Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dilhan Fernando from Colombo, Sri Lanka. Dilhan is the CEO of the internationally renowned and admired tea brand Dilma. In addition to that, he is the chairman of Biodiversity Sri Lanka and has been significantly involved in the development, conservation, and recognition of Sri Lanka, amongst many more things. I can't wait to get stuck in. So, welcome, Dilhan. How are you? How are things in Colombo? Tom, it's a wonderful pleasure. It's warm and beautiful here. I've got a, a warm cup of tea, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Beautiful. Uh, the, the conditions aren't so warm over here in Canada, but I'm, I'm definitely feeling the vibes. Would love to be there with you. One day. I look forward to that, but uh, looking forward to sharing whatever warmth we can, particularly through tea. Indeed. Indeed. So... I guess there's many places that I could start this conversation, but it wouldn't seem right if I didn't start on the tea side of things. Dilmar Salon Tea Company, put simply, is a pioneer in the tea industry and has fundamentally changed it. From my understanding, in two ways in particular. First, that the majority of value addition happens at origin, proving that a nation such as Sri Lanka was not only capable of producing tea, but also blending, packaging and exporting to consuming nations. And secondly, in a similar fashion to wine, I suppose, that tea can be consumed as a single origin where terroir, flavors, aromas are distinguished and are unique. Can you explain a little bit uh, how the inception of Dilmar came about and your involvement with sculpting the incredible brand that it has become today? Well, I uh, must say first, I can't claim any credit for it, but uh, it was entirely my father's vision. And it was a beautiful vision because it was the right thing to do. If you really consider what tea is, it is a a herb with extraordinary richness in its heritage and its functional benefit. It is uniquely rich in natural antioxidants. and, And the reality is that tea began as a medicine. And so when Emperor Shen Nung and his physicians first harvested tea, It was as a herbal medicine. And of course, Emperor Shen Nung, being the father of traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, he would uh, uh, surely recognize a great herb uh, when he saw and tasted one. And so from there, there was the logical evolution until possibly, um, I would say, approximately 100 years ago when tea became a commodity. And it became a commodity simply because of the success and uh, uh, the success of the tea category became, in a sense, a victim of its own success. Mm-hmm. And so it evolved in the direction of uh, commoditization. And that's where my father came in, because in the 1950s, uh, well, precisely in 1950, uh, as part of the first group of Sri Lankans, or well, at the time we were called Silanese, he joined Um, tea tasters in Mincing Lane, London, which uh, ironically was then the center of the global tea trade. And when he went there, he saw the uh, advent of of blending, Um, not blending for, um, you know, prior to that, uh, teas were blended in order to suit a specific uh, water quality or specific taste. But in this case, there was blending for commercial reasons, which is something that we are fundamentally uh, uh, opposed to, and that is 
where you know you take uh, a little bit of a good tea with a reputation and you add uh, a lot of uh, very ad average and uh, cheap tea and uh, end up by uh, talking more about the good stuff than the bad mm -hmm. stuff and so uh, ultimately it became a little bit of a mirage and so uh, it, it entered tea entered a cycle of decline and that's when my father saw that look this this blending is really not going to do Sri Lanka any good because by this time Ceylon tea had a a wonderful reputation as uh, tea made in the in the conservative uh, uh, agricultural practices, the artisanal tradition, and even today, every kilogram of tea, Ceylon tea that is exported from Sri Lanka is controlled with uh, traceability and so on. So, um, in this context, um, what was also clear, forgetting the industry perspective or rather beyond the industry perspective, was the fact that uh, if Sri Lanka didn't reclaim her destiny, uh, there would be a very tragic end to our industry. And with a couple of million people involved at that time, even today, I guess, uh, directly and indirectly could be around 2 million involved in the tea industry. That was a, a social outcome that uh, was, was my father was not prepared to uh, consider. So his role was in uh, really delivering paradigm shift. I know people use that uh, term uh, quite loosely, but this was genuinely paradigm shift because if you look at the tea, coffee, cocoa, the, the key, um, you could say uh, colonial crops, I mean, because they were associated with a, a period of uh, colonialism, you would find that there was no value addition at all at source. And, uh, and, and taking that in context of the fact that it is the producer that ultimately can address certain and and only the producer that can address certain aspects that are uh, challenging us today if you look at climate change if you look at uh, social inequality mm -hmm. it is the producer that is the change agent and so it was what my father did at that time uh, was really visionary in more ways than one it wasn't simply protecting tea but uh, preparing and building resilience and sustainability in in a tea industry which unfortunately even today has uh, very similar situ similar issues with, uh, I mean, even uh, I guess today we are in the 2000, uh, 2000s, but a uh, long way from his beginning. Mm -hmm. But still you see hallmarks of a colonial economic system. And that's tragic because that ultimately deprives the producer of the ability to benefit from his or her produce. That's kind of the context. Mm -hmm. And where I fit into that is that uh, 25 years ago I showed up and uh, um, really uh, to me this this was all very fascinating because I mean I have a uh, I mean I guess like most people have a natural uh, appreciation of nature or and and, and tea um, has a has an enduring connection with nature in the fact that it is uh, the sunshine that uh, brings brightness to uh, a cup of tea it is the the cool temperatures, it's a diurnal range that produces certain uh, complexity in an Aurelia and so on. So there is a very clear, uh, very clear connection between nature, the ambient conditions, temperature, soils, uh, and the quality, the character, the, the aroma and the texture of the tea. So this has always fascinated me and, um, you know, loving nature and loving tea uh, I found uh, a beautiful um, combination in the two, and I and you know we we also inherited 
an industry which is you know as as a mono, monoculture it's uh, it's not the most sustainable form it was done then and the thing about history is you can uh, criticize it you can uh, uh, talk as ill as you wish about the uh, colonial regime but uh, it is what it is mm -hmm. and that was a different time and so uh, i would say that uh, uh, my focus is as much on building biodiversity building climate resilience uh, you know there are so many simple technologies that form the solution to um, climate change to so many of the environmental and really the sustainability challenges the existential challenges that plantations around the world face that uh, it, it, it's not particularly difficult it's a fairly logical process because the knowledge is out there all you need is uh, a computer and the internet to find uh, myriad ways of uh, trying to address some of these challenges so yes i mean I guess uh, uh, I would say that uh, it is my father's uh, commitment, passion, dedication, uh, faith in God that gave Dilma the initial impetus. It is his vision and uh, my contribution. Since you asked, I uh, I, I would sort of uh, put that uh, a second or a third uh, priority after what my father achieved would be really to say that yes. We need to look at how we translate that for the 21st century. And that is in looking at uh, innovation in tea, experiential innovation. It's, it's looking at trying to communicate to consumers about the quality, the incredible influence of nature, the natural goodness, and trying to get beyond the commoditization and, and sharing the beauty that lies in every cup of tea. For sure, for sure. It's, it's definitely a progression um from from what it was to to what it has to be now and it's great to hear that you've been able to help assist dilma into becoming the the company in the 21st century going on from that i guess this is a question that comes from more of a personal interest but dilan you recently became the ceo of dilma taking over from your father you work with your brother Malik, your children, and and broader family, from from what I understand. Can you explain a little bit about the values and synergies, and perhaps some obstacles and rewards that a family business such as Dilma presents? Well, I think you know, family business is uh, really it's it's something that must characterize the future for more way, more reasons than one. The first is. In a family business, it's it's formed on values of humanity, and um, you know, in a family, you don't have um, um, some sort of faceless board that makes uh, uh, demands for delivery on certain, whether it is commercial, uh, financial, whatever it is. But um, typically, unfortunately, corporations have become dehumanized, and uh, uh, the reason for that is there is this concept of a shareholder that is. Uh, uh, relentless in their demands for uh, profit and uh, there is a disconnect between the shareholder uh, to an extent uh, with the management and a disconnect between the management and uh, the people and the customers and so ultimately it's a one-way relationship because it anticipates profit profit uh, at any cost and where family is concerned it's it's a much more people-centric affair in the sense that uh, you know if somebody has a an issue in uh, sales uh, you have a chat with them i think you know as much as i do tom 
how yeah. that works. You have a chat and you say, hey, look, you know, what do we do now? And there is also a concept in a family business of what is right and what is wrong. I'm not saying that uh, uh, corporations uh, are inherently bad because ultimately any business is composed of people. And But it is the structure and the form of many corporations that don't uh, that doesn't really lend itself to the demands of uh, the 21st century. And so, you know, with the family business, we have the uh, luxury of, of well, I, I guess it should be it should be a norm, but we have the possibility of telling a customer, look, no, I'm sorry. And, and many are the occasions when we've had customers who said, look, I want to do uh, big time. I want to do this and this. But, you know, the thing that, uh, you know, this uh, purity of origin thing, um, sorry, you know, you've got to you got to compromise that and you've got to put a little bit of this and a little bit of that tea and you know it might not be kind of quite what you guys would do but you know do that for me and uh, i'll deliver you uh, 100 containers or 2200 containers or whatever so i mean in a family business it's fantastic that we we have the possibility of saying i'm sorry that doesn't comply with our um, our integrity and ultimately you know, I think that's that's the word that I would describe family business. Uh, you know, if you look at family values, uh, they are simple values. It's uh, hu- humane, uh, but beyond that, it's it's also about integrity. If you look for one word that would define it, so I love that, and I really don't think that I I could survive a day in any business that didn't have humanity as as it at its heart. And you know, most of the businesses, of course, by number. Uh, in the world are today family businesses. And it is fantastic because what we talk of, and when I say we, because when I meet other family businesses, it's it's so wonderful to hear things like, look, this is what my grandfather uh, wanted. This was his dream. This is what we do. This is what we continue to do. I'm not saying that the business should stagnate in taking a a vision from uh, 100 years ago and and continuing to, to, it, it, it has to evolve. But the fundamentals of that vision, whether it is about quality, about goodness, about purpose, uh, the fundamentals need to be, need to continue uh, adapted, of course, to the present reality. But uh, I think this is what is so very special about family business. And to me, I can tell you, it is such an energizing environment because you have the possibility uh, of taking decisions like, for example, at the beginning of uh, COVID, Mm-hmm. The, there was a knee-jerk reaction in March last year when, you know, as the situation wore on into April, May, June, suddenly people said, my goodness, you know, we are, we are hemorrhaging cash and lots of businesses I know were significantly cutting uh, salaries, were retrenching people. And, you know, I had a chat with mm-hmm. my father, my brother, and uh, really at that point, my father just said, hey, look, you know, look after our people. I don't want to see you cutting uh, uh, salaries. I want to. I want you know. They're 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 struggling. They're going to have trouble themselves. We've got to make sure we get their salaries to them. Find a way of making sure we protect our people, which was a fantastic thing. I mean, of course, it was a, it was a crazy challenge at that time when you know we didn't have much. Uh, we didn't have many options with the kind of hard lockdowns that we were going through. But it was brilliant because that's a challenge that you really put your shoulder to and say, okay, look, what am I going to do? How am I going to find new revenue how am i going to go in different directions but knowing that you can never compromise on fundamentals so i guess um yeah it's a complex area family business and absolutely it's a fantastic thing but this is what uh, appeals most to me 
indeed it gives you the flexibility to make your own decisions for for example if that was in a company that had a board it's an easy decision for them to to cut people and to to lower their salaries because at the end of the day they're striving for their their profit as you described earlier but uh but also Tom, it's because of the disc it's also because of the disconnect you know i i, I think again i mean you know i i hate to sound critical of anyone but you know mm-hmm. i guess they meet once a month or once a quarter and sure. uh, you know you and i we know how it is in family businesses you rub shoulders with these guys whether it's a technician or an operator and i think i, I mentioned integrity as a significant uh, feature of family business but another that i must add that my father has uh, ingrained into us is humility and humility means whether it's the guy who's uh, standing guard at your uh, factory or whether it's the guy who's making the tea or the director you need to make sure that uh, you, you know them and uh, so you know your decisions are very different when you know them and you rub shoulders with them absolutely absolutely it gives more of a humane aspect as you were describing before um, and, and I guess on that note the the family business values that Dilmar carries does that make it easier for such a a noble vision and mission within the company to include the people who your father grew up alongside and and the rest of the people in the nation absolutely you know um on wednesday this year once again the auction room in the main chamber of the ceylon chamber of commerce it was mm-hmm. the, a buzz um because you know uh, almost exactly a year ago our tea auctions evolved into a, a digital platform so they went online uh, because mm-hmm. uh, it, it was too dangerous for the whole tea community to meet as they used to in the, the three sale rooms in at the Colombo uh, auctions. And so for a year, we haven't had this uh, uh, beautiful aspect of the tea industry. So on Wednesday, in an event to honor my father and to launch a book that uh, we have produced in appreciation of the tea industry, it's a knowledge uh, of, of every aspect of tea agriculture and so on, we had a, a ceremonial auction it was uh, it was amazing. It was really spectacular because the people came together. They they talked of uh, values. They talked of unity, of solidarity, of strength, and uh, it was a it was an amazing occasion. But yes, family values uh, are critically important. And as my father said in his speech, you know, standing there at the age of ninety one, talking to uh, most major stakeholders in the tea industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, he explained that it was actually his mother who ingrained into him the values, the the uh, importance of sharing. And I think that ultimately is it because there's two aspects to it. I mean, for us, we have a very clear belief that, you know, that success is a blessing that must be shared. It must be a conduit. There is no point in hoarding success in, in whatever form uh, that you're blessed with. But also the fact for him that when he was uh, first crafting his vision and his mission in life, he did so on the basis of certain values that uh, specifically his mother had taught him. And, you know, he he shared with the industry how when he was a uh, young chap, his uh, mother would, you know, take, I mean, you know, they came from an ordinary family. Yeah. So just to put it in the right context, it was a very ordinary family. They didn't have uh, uh, many luxuries. But, uh, you know, he would get a chocolate and she'd still cut that in two and make sure that the neighbors or passing kid from uh, somewhere would uh, have a half of it. And I think that kind of uh, family value, uh, which we all have, 
but in certain environments, we're not permitted to express it or to implement it into the way we behave. And that's what I meant about the, the dehumanizing aspect of some large businesses. But in our case, that has absolutely been at the heart. If you really consider this, well, last year, you know, was a tragic year for everyone. In our case, it was, uh, it was especially so. But yet, in spite of that, nearly 300 uh, million uh, rupees, that uh, would be what by today's value, I guess, uh, uh, nearly $2 million right. was used for humanitarian and uh, environmental interventions, positive uh, mm-hmm. you know, community interventions. And of course, that comes completely off our pre-tax uh, earnings. But, you know, that uh, I reflect upon this hard year and, you know, you think, look, my goodness, you know, we put uh, every day has been a 12 hour day and it's been uh, sleepless nights thinking, look, how do we make sure that we build new revenue streams? How do we make sure we we protect the business? I mean, we've all been been through this and, and wondering what tomorrow is going to hold. And pretty much tomorrow brought chaos, volatility, and, and it has continued. It continues in that way. And yet to look back and say, look, you know, this is what we delivered. That is everything that family values embody. And it is truly an expression of that family value because, you know, in in hard times, uh, I have many, many occasions when uh, staff come up and say, hey, you know, should you really be doing this? I mean, that 300 million would really be the difference between our uh, bottom line uh, looking woeful and looking good. Mm. So, you know, and I have the uh, luxury of saying, sorry, there's no compromise on that. So I think, yes, family values, absolutely, but also the family values that go into its execution because as important as assigning funds and, you know, assigning funds, uh, although it's difficult, it's actually the easier part. As easy as that is relatively, much more difficult is the execution. And the execution, I mean, Looking at the way our MJF Foundation, MJF, my father, Meryl J. Fernando, and uh, the foundation named after him, which uh, something that we wanted to do, it operates in a way that targets or protects the dignity of the beneficiary. So we look at, for example, you look at you look at war widows. You look at uh, from the conflict that ended in two thousand and nine. You look at uh, uh, children with cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, etc. Always about building them through their dignity. It's, it's it's never about the conventional notion of CSR because you can quite honestly you can uh, uh, get a heck of a lot of marketing benefit if you follow a conventional format and say hey you know let's put pictures of crying kids and you know let's uh, let's uh, sort of milk this for all it's worth. But unfortunately, that's that's not a sustainable way forward. That's uh, abusing the people that you're trying to help. So as a family business, we were able to take a call and say, you know, CSR, conventional CSR, load of rubbish. We need to be able to help people. And the only instance in which we should talk about them is to say, look, here are people who are transformed, who are, who are strengthened and a successful project delivered um, to encourage other businesses to follow suit. And this has been fantastic because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a focus on the positive aspects of uh, helping people rather than focusing on raising funds and so on. Of course, I mean, we also have the luxury of knowing that we provide our own funding, so we don't need to raise funds and pull on people's heartstrings. But it's also about, again, about integrity, about saying, look, there is one way we need to help these people, but we need to help them not through the process, but through the impact and through the success 
of the project. That is what we should be proud of, not by saying, you know, uh, there's a bad situation, you know, come and join us in helping them. The same thing for the environment. You know, you look at a degraded uh, ecosystem, for example, you transform it and you show brilliant pictures of an amazing achievement and, and talk about what a great achievement it is to inspire others. And of course, ultimately, you have to extend that as we have done, you mentioned biodiversity Sri Lanka, the reason we established that is uh, no more than to say, you know, what we do, it shouldn't be an isolated act of social or environmental good, we've got to build advocacy, we've got to build a coalition for good, if we're going to deliver impact at a national level. And so what that and uh, our involvement with UNGC in Sri Lanka have done is to is, is to bring together other corporates, say, hey, you know, this is how we can do it. You know, use our resources. Let's come together on this. Let's cooperate in reforesting uh, a part of uh, uh, this region. Let's do something uh, in, you know, so, I mean, whether it is uh, right now, of course, we are looking at uh, vaccination of uh, people, uh, collaboration amongst businesses. Um, some people come uh, a long way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge exercise because there's, uh, uh, I think, another six, uh, six or seven million people to go. Yeah. And people come a long distance. You've got to make sure they have something to eat, something to drink, make sure they're cared for for the 30, 40 minutes uh, after the vaccine is delivered. So businesses coming together, you can actually achieve that. Of course, you know, it's, it's a large scale, but I think what COVID has taught us is that with collaboration, there is really no limit to what we can achieve, but we must collaborate so that people and businesses of different disciplines and capabilities come together and deliver something for the common good. So all that to us is rooted in, in family business. Absolutely. It's it's really amazing and inspiring to hear that story, the way that you've told it and, and exactly why you are doing what you are doing. I guess just going on to the MJF Charitable Foundation, um, it's it's very much focused on the development of Sri Lankan people, but also Sri Lanka as a whole. Can you explain some more about the tangible differences that the MJF Charitable Foundation has made on the lives of people in Sri Lanka? Well, we have several different areas. Uh, plantation sector is a significant part of our program. And one, what we focus on there is in, in empowering the community. So that means, you know, we, we've inherited a really difficult situation because you've inherited a, a structure where you have a people living on the plantation. Uh, and literally, it's uh, in, the, in the old days, it used to be called from cradle to grave. And the, the manager of the estate had this group of 100, 200 families uh, literally from the cradle to the grave. And that was mm -hmm. a, a concept that was nurtured at the time. But today, we, it's, it's fundamentally, um, it's dysfunctional um, for the reason that today we have people living on our estates with uh, us providing everything for them with uh, uh, only uh, probably 15, 20% of them working on the estate. And yet the estates suffering uh, from uh, commercially because you know the discount culture in retail has really had a corrosive impact on uh, on, on tea because uh, people aren't able to, to command the kind of prices that would make the whole industry sustainable. So it's a struggle. I mean, and and it's uh, why I mentioned that uh, example of the resident uh, workforce and uh, resident non-working uh, people. 
is to explain some of the structural issues that we confront. So it's not their fault because this is, uh, like I said, uh, history, it is what it is. And so what we're trying to do is to help them, to engage them, to build entrepreneurship, to help address the youth, uh, to help address uh, things from uh, you know, reproductive uh, health uh, through to looking at the uh, situation we have in, in some, I mean, nationally, we have an average of around 8% of differently abled uh, uh, children. So from uh, addressing uh, uh, education relating to how you handle uh, a child with uh, cerebral palsy to explaining that uh, look these are not diseases because I, it's it's a disability amongst uh, children is a big part of our program simply because it is a, a big part of of what needs to be done people who are in uh, lower lower socioeconomic levels they suffer much more when they have uh, a child with uh, developmental disorder. And so they, they may tend to either suffer more or they may tend to consider options that, uh, you know, we wouldn't want them to. There is uh, so much infanticide happening in different countries. I'm not, not yet, uh, well, not here, but uh, it's something that we want to avoid. And so we need to look, for example, we, we use our network to try to help them. So we, I mean, we have several centers. We have 13 centers around Sri Lanka that deliver various free services from vocational training to uh, helping children with disability, helping women, teaching them uh, business, helping them. Uh, we've got culinary schools, etc. cetera. Uh, cricket for people who, you know, some, some people who are left brain thinkers who need uh, discipline, to need to understand life. I mean, cricket is a great means of, of uh, explaining to them the discipline that sport requires because that same discipline, once you've got through to that child who's uh, maybe uh, not very successful at school, but clearly creative and explained the principles of life, particularly commitment, discipline, etc., in through cricket, then they've gone on and we've had some amazing stories of success. But uh, uh, getting back to the centers and to what we do on plantations and so on, you know, it's it's uh, we we started as an example when uh, March April we couldn't have the kids coming in and the parents suffering at home, you know, because it's uh, it's it's very demanding, I guess in the in most environments it's demanding to have a change of uh, circumstance where you know suddenly uh, you're not going out to work, you're uh, at home, uh, you you're handling a child with a certain developmental disorder, and so we started a teletherapy app. And that was that was really fantastic. And of course, now we've graduated. We've been permitted by the public health uh, system to move on to one-on-one -on -one counseling. But uh, uh, we cooperated with Microsoft. Uh, they were amazing. Uh, and, and Millennium uh, ESP, which is a it's a Sri Lankan IT house affiliated to the London Stock Exchange. And you know it, this kind of thing. I think that's also an area where business can come together and we talked of collaboration i mean we could never hope to develop an app but then with the involvement of, um, of microsoft of uh, millennium we were able to deliver something that delivered impact so you know wonderful collaboration but in other areas you know teaching people you know entrepreneurship and that is something that has really come into the fore now because everybody's you know you have complete uh, reshuffle of uh, uh, assumptions we had in the rural economy in particular. So now we're trying to teach people who would typically produce uh, a raw material, uh, teach someone who did buffalo milk and got next to nothing for their produce, uh, 
uh, teach them how to make curd, teach the ones who are making curd how to make cheese and uh, help them to add value, provide them with scientific context, education. It's, it's not really earth shattering stuff. Mm. Uh, it's fairly straightforward. And I guess for you, uh, Tom, you might consider, look, this is all relatively easy, but the important thing is to deliver these in a way that is culturally, um, socially uh, acceptable. And so this is what our centers do, whether it is demonstrating the impact of certain therapies, uh, you know, looking at motor skills for a child with uh, Down syndrome, as an example, uh, looking at, you know, and, and you know, you might think teaching uh, teaching a lady to cook uh, commercially, maybe, you know, might be a war widow, might be, uh, might be someone who's uh, uh, having a difficult time, who's, who's a less fortunate person from a difficult community. You know, it, you might think it's, it's as easy as saying, look, show up and we'll teach you, but there are huge cultural impediments. And so I can tell you as an example, uh, we, have, uh, we have a center uh, on the outskirts of Colombo where we have our Rainbow Center. Rainbow Center is for children with uh, autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, ADHD, and so on. So the kids come in and, you know, we observed that the mothers uh, were sort of sitting around and not doing a lot. Uh, and were, many of them were also suffering uh, from uh, domestic violence. And so we told them, hey, you know, come on in, let's do some vocational training because we have a culinary school and uh, we've got a few hours when the culinary school is uh, is available, but immediately they are no 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 you know we we can't do those things we are not uh, capable we're not competent so it was also uh, an issue of confidence an issue of mindset so we thought about this and then a few weeks later we said uh, okay mums uh, I'm sorry but things are tough we need to start levying a fee for, for on on you to uh, bring your children to our center. So, of course, this was calamity for them. Um, but we said, you know, it was a small fee. It was about uh, mm -hmm. 10, sorry, about 5, 10 cents. Uh, but we said, okay, no. Um, well, I mean, once that reality and the, the fright set in, we said, you know, you have an option. You could come and uh, do some work in the kitchens. And so, of course, in, they, they all took that uh, second option. Mm -hmm. And what was amazing was that in that process, we were able to teach them to cook. We were able to teach them bookkeeping. We were able to teach them how to run an outlet because we have sort of test outlets. And we were able to create entrepreneurs. So I'm sharing this example as uh, some of the ways in which as a family business, we need to look differently because if you want to deliver, if you want to deliver a, a process outcome, a CSR outcome, we could have those ladies uh, smiling and uh, you know making a chocolate cake. But if you want to deliver impact, we need to create entrepreneurs. And to do that, we need to teach them the whole deal. But we need to, most importantly, change their mindset, change the mindset in the case of the, the this is, it's called the Women's Development Program, in the case of the WDP, to change the mindset of their husbands and their immediate family so that they are recognized. So that meant having graduation ceremonies, you know, felicitating them. Um, of course, giving them the relevant skills and then helping them uh, to start cooperative businesses amongst each other, supporting them, etc. And and you know, now they are catering; they are doing catering businesses, cake making, you know, doing weddings and so on. So it's that it's that commitment and that sincerity to the purpose, I think, that defines a family business. Because for us, 
you know, in, in a traditional environment, we could have done it in a much easier and much less complex way. But, you know, for it's, it's really the joy, the fulfillment, particularly for my father, mm. is in experiencing and seeing the impact on the families. For sure. That's powerful stuff. And it hits me, that's for sure. Uh, do, do you think that perhaps also because it's coming from a Sri Lankan-owned company and not perhaps another company that's socially driven and perhaps a non-government organization or a non-for-profit organization coming in from another country, but the fact that it, Dilmar is a Sri Lankan company, that it also adds a, an extra layer of people willing to come and want to learn and, and change some of the, the situations that they're in? To be honest, they don't actually know that it's from Dilma. And one of the reasons why we've named the MJ Foundation the way it is, is that if we had said it's the Dilma Foundation, people may have thought, you know, oh, these guys are here for CSR. Because remember, we have uh, a set of accepted circumstances where a business goes out and does things to fulfill its CSR obligation. And typically those uh, obligations are aligned with uh, marketing. And so there is a lot of this happening, of course. And, you know, I'm not saying it's bad because, uh, you know, incrementally any good is is good. But if we had gone out as Dilma Foundation, we would have, we could have lost uh, what is the most uh, critical success factor in many of these projects, which is trust. So when we go as the MJ Foundation, um, none of us are branded, none of us carry cameras. Uh, I mean, I go often. And uh, it's, a, it's a completely MJ Foundation event because the minute you have a brand, um, subliminally you expect, oh, okay, you know, that there's, uh, this is part of a promotion. Oh, we are part of that promotion and we are being shown around the country and so on. So, you know, our... I think it's also about how you act. I guess it's not just the name, but people know that Dilma, we do the right thing. But, uh, you know, it, it, we could also get mixed up with some of the general CSR things. So our events are pretty straightforward. Uh, we show up, uh, my father and I, uh, my brother, uh, some of our colleagues, we talk to the people. It's, it's wonderful because, you know, if you really think about it, uh, Tom, if you look at what really makes... Uh, makes makes a person happy uh, i guess particularly in the this uh, new norm we are all questioning that i can assure you that seeing somebody whose life you have been able to touch particularly seeing a family and hearing their stories seeing their smiles that is worth uh, a lot more than uh, you know getting your 10 20 containers or whatever it is so it is it really there is no yeah. comparison in terms of, of fulfillment. And I think that's what my father feels at the age of 91. Try to take him to as many events as possible. And in fact, last week we had a thing called uh, uh, Cerebral Palsy Champions, CP Champions. And wow, mm-hmm. you know, to go out there and to see the impact, that is something that uh, is inspiring. And many, any corporate can uh, know that. Of course, you can't communicate and you can't use your brand to the same extent, but it's a question of, the fulfillment and the joy of knowing that you delivered impact. Absolutely. I, I was very fortunate back in 2018 to visit one of the MJF foundations uh, in, in the plantations and just seeing the people there and going around. And I think we also visited a, a small community uh, that was around the MJF, the center that had children while the parents were out tea picking. And, and it was just unbelievable to witness just the tangible results that are happening on the ground. It was, it was a, 
a memory that I won't forget. Please come back and refresh that memory. You'll be very welcome. Absolutely. Uh, I'll have to uh, jump on a plane as soon as I can, that's for sure. But yeah, in saying that, when I was traveling around in Sri Lanka for a little bit, um, some of my favorite parts were its natural beauty and amazing wildlife. And, and this is kind of moving on to more about the conservation side of things. One of the major issues facing pretty much everyone and everywhere in the world is the access to clean water, lack of food security and diminishing biodiversity. Are you able to dive a little deeper into the activities of Dilmar conservation and why your work in that area is so crucial in Sri Lanka? Well, actually, our uh, work is very much aligned with those because those are fundamental principles of this time, particularly with the climate challenges. So if you look at uh, uh, our efforts in the area of biodiversity, it's not simply uh, bringing in endemic species and planting them to you know, improve the biodiversity of an area, but rather ensuring that there are species that are both nutritious, that, you know, you've got jackfruit is a very nutritious fruit that you have in Sri Lanka that you use in curries and different other types of uh, food. Extremely good introduced here in the last, uh, I think about uh, 50 or 60 years ago in response to a famine um, in between the two world wars. So sorry, yes, that would make it about 100 years ago. But mm. beyond that, also looking at uh, biodiversity to strengthen food systems, but ultimately looking to also strengthen the, the, the farmer because to improve food security, you need to look at the rural economy. You need to be looking at how we address the need of the farmer in terms of innovation. And when I talk about innovation, I don't mean the whiz-bang stuff that we read about uh, in the Financial Times, but what I mean is simple innovation to help the farmer to be at the front line of overcoming or combating deforestation, because the uh, the the kind of, I, I guess it's it's a question of price, because ultimately rural farmers today they get the uh, I guess they they get the sharp end of the stick in the sense that they don't always get a fair price, and when they don't get a fair price, it means that they can't build their capability. It means that they they can't educate their children, therefore they can't adapt to some of the realities we see around us. I mean, there's many of them who have no idea of how to respond to this changing climate. Now, that is important because otherwise what happens is they use a plot of land. When they finish up with it, they say, oh my goodness, the land is degraded. What do I do? Cut a few trees, clear this area and uh, okay, start again. And of course, you keep going through that cycle. But instead, if we can sort of educate them and help them, give them access to knowledge and technologies that will help them to, to uh, innovate in a very simple sense. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about agriculture 2.0 rather than mm. 4.0, um, yeah. because today the world is talking about extremely high tech. Uh, I mean, you're looking at aquaponics, hydroponics, you're looking at some great stuff. It's brilliant, but the majority of, of farmers are still at uh, 2.0 and we need to make sure that they have access to the internet, they have access to the knowledge that uh, Tom, you and I take for granted. So that's one part of it. And that's uh, done a lot by Dilma Conservation where we have a climate change uh, research and adaptation uh, center. Why research and adaptation? We don't want uh, scientists to be telling us uh, what's going on with climate change, rather to be looking at the solutions that have been out there since 2004, five, uh, I think it was the Stern report. I mean, if you read that report today, it's we are 
16 years on, but uh, it's got all the solutions. And the simple principle is mitigation is going to be a heck of a lot cheaper than doing uh, nothing and simply confronting the challenges of, of uh, climate change. And so I guess where the foundation operates is in taking talking to the workers, helping them to, to be educated. This initiative that we launched on Wednesday, it's an evolution of that. It's called Stronger Together. And it talks about home gardening. It's about encouraging them, saying, look, grow stuff that is nutritious, improve uh, improve your health because that's going to help you in retirement. You know, it's, these are difficult things. I guess, you know, we things that I try to teach my children and, and often fail miserably, you know, take, stop eating fried, deep fried food. Here's different mm-hmm. ways. You know, in Sri Lanka, we have inheritance, I think, from our Portuguese uh, period where we, we love uh, what the Portuguese call tapas, but which has evolved into something quite nasty. It's deep fried uh, stuff, you know. So one of the things we try to do is try to change uh, food culture to say, okay, you know, let's let's go with healthier stuff, but also let's let's grow and and let's let's build agroforestry concepts. I mean, we are doing a, a blue carbon uh, project in the north of Sri Lanka, which I love because it's working with local communities to plant 400 acres of uh, uh, seaweed or of sea grasses of different types, and uh, then working with that same community to harvest to buy it back and to use it as uh, fertilizer, natural fertilizer, of course, on our plantations. And it's incredibly uh, nutritious. In, you know, and so integrating that into agroforestry, simple principles, which uh, you know, we are sometimes uh, captive to tradition and what we know is what we know. But you know, today, um, you, you, know, you, you watch... Uh, watch some of the videos i mean really on on youtube you can see so much education about how agroforestry works the principles and it's so simple so impactful so if you are looking at the challenges of food security we we can't look at anything in isolation we need to look at food security uh, together with uh, uh, addressing a changing climate addressing degraded soils addressing a warmer uh, climate but also addressing livelihoods so when you integrate this into a holistic program, as in fact we've started doing on several of our estates, uh, you know, pulling up the plants, I, I think one of the things that we did, which uh, several of the planting, planting community was horrified at a few years ago, we um, pulled up really, uh, I guess, a few fields, uh, I guess a few uh, thousand tea plants uh, mm-hmm. on uh, one of our estates. And, uh, you know, there, there was horror at seeing my father doing this and uh, I mean we did it and we publicized it because we wanted to make it known what we were doing is building a nature corridor because we had two areas of uh, extraordinary biological diversity which due to the 200 years ago a decision by uh, a tea planter to plant tea in between uh, meant that you know we were compromising the richness species richness and the biodiversity of two so we wanted to connect them so that the species could walk together walk among and not only the the, uh, animal species but also the plant species and there could be uh, a general benefit and we did it but it was it's important um, for this kind of in in this instance to demonstrate to communicate and say look why are we doing it and so of course we use the shock value of here's the man who everyone respects as uh, uh, the the champion of Ceylon tea, and he's uprooting uh, Ceylon tea plants. And the reason for that was simply to say, look, you know, guys, we need to be thinking about uh, what's coming around the corner. 
and we need to be understanding uh, uh, the importance of biodiversity because biodiversity is what's going to strengthen our food systems uh, it's what's going to strengthen ecosystem services i mean it, it involves water it involves quality of air involves uh, flood control uh, there's a host of ecosystem services uh, that uh, are, are critical to as as human uh, life support and even um, the center on outskirts of Colombo. I know a um, few people have called us uh, commercially crazy, but uh, my father agreed to assign almost, uh, what is it, nine acres. This was uh, a project that is so close to his heart, right in the center of uh, a city of Morotua, uh, highly commercially valued property to a property that has uh, it has an arboretum. It has Sri Lanka's first urban arboretum where students can come and learn about nature, learn about uh, ecosystem services, learn about how air is uh, cleansed, how water is purified, how carbon is absorbed. Uh, and it has a variety of different uh, projects there, including uh, aquaponics and a sustainable agricultural farm and so on. So it's difficult for me to sort of explain all the projects because we've got a, yeah. a couple hundred projects going on but this is kind of the example of course you know then then taking technologies like biochar relaying it because it's so important for people to understand that there are ways to to get around these issues because farmers are now sitting back and you know we don't want them to be caught like you know deer in the headlights because they don't know you know suddenly the seasons have changed the rain's coming at at some at, at an unexpected time what do i do here you know so we set up the Climate Change uh, Research and Adaptation Center by Dilma Conservation to, to address that, to help people understand what's happening. And I mean, that's, again, a collaboration because we are not scientists. We can facilitate, but ultimately it's a scientist and we have some wonderful scientists. I think we have several universities, I think seven universities that are collaborating with us there. Um, simply translating knowledge, um, adapting it to our local environment and sharing it amongst people so that uh, they can benefit from it i think that's ultimately our objective for sure i think i think it's pretty powerful when when somebody such as your father does something so counterintuitive like ripping out tea plants but it, it's for a, a bigger message and and perhaps is on the forefront of things it's just a sign of what people need to do and and i think it's a sign of what is to come Another thing about the food security and sort of the counterintuitive nature of, of ripping out tea plants and, and whatnot and also developing communities is that a lot of people are now moving for better opportunities into cities, so a bit more urbanisation. But at the end of the day, somebody still needs to go out into the field and, and pick the tea. How is that conversation between the development side of things on an education level and perhaps on an infrastructure level with also the fact that we still need to have farms, we still need to have people working in rural departments? Well, I think that is, again, a question. The bottom line is it's about the, it's about the wage. Um, in Sri Lanka, this mm. is a very been very topical and quite a burning issue. The reason why it's burning is not, I mean, from my perspective, is the fact that, yes, everyone is, in, is entitled, it's natural for them to be to enhance their welfare, to to want more and better for future generations, that's uh, that's a no-brainer. But the issue we have is when an international community 
or international media turn around and say, hey, you know, you guys need to be raising wages and uh, the plantation company is saying, you know, we can't afford it. And why? This is why we can't afford it because wages form 80% of our cost of production. We can't get any value addition or we can't get significant value addition because of, uh, I mean, I'm not talking about Dilma here, I'm talking about the industry as a whole because mm-hmm. of the, the discount culture, et cetera, et cetera. So I think recognizing that the industry needs people because the, the quality of Ceylon tea is connected with the people. It's important also to communicate the reality that a living wage is determined by a multiplicity of factors that are market side as well as production side. So I think it's very unfair whether in tea or coffee or cocoa to turn to the producer and say, hey, you know, get your act together, educate your workers, uh, workers' children, give them uh, a better wage. You can't say that unless we say, okay, how much are you earning from your produce? And are you therefore able to sustainably deliver these uh, additional benefits? I think that needs to be the key because the world is characterized. If you look at the coffee industry, taking that as a parallel, tea isn't as badly affected as that, but the producer gets something like 2% of, uh, mm-hmm. well, you, you know the whole whole story, but yeah. I, I know I know there are some beautiful exceptions in coffee, in, in chocolate, in uh, and in tea. But generally, uh, this is a, a feature of uh, most of the uh, industries or, or the colonial industries that like tea and coffee. But I think that's ultimately at the heart of it. We've got to go to the producer and make sure that the producer has a sustainable way of earning and, and growing because it is that that will make them frontline champions for climate change, for food security, and so on, that transformation that is possible is truly amazing. But, you know, of course, there's research also onto, into technology. There's uh, things happening with, uh, I mean, we are trialing drone-assisted uh, precision agriculture. We're looking at drone harvesting. There's, uh, you know, so many different uh, different ways, because I guess in 10 years' time, we may not have a lot of, uh, or we may not have as many tea pickers as we do currently. So, yeah, that's a reality. Industries change. Uh, People's aspirations change. We need to find a way of facilitating. It's a complex, complex area. So maybe uh, not within the scope of uh, this discussion. Indeed. Yeah, it's it's probably a conversation that will never end as well. Just moving along with the, uh, the events of the past 12 months or so and the anticipation and excitement of what is ahead of us in the next 12 months. Where where do you see Dilma sitting in all of this and, and how do you think the tea industry will evolve? Well, I think the relevance of tea has been demonstrated in an amazing way through this period because tea ultimately, I mean, as we started out discussing, it, it, it was a medicine and it is enjoying its renaissance and, and this time it is truly a resurgence which is based on its natural health benefits, it, it's, its natural goodness is, is unique. And so based on that and the benefits on the health in terms of the immune system, I mean, last week I was reading about the hypertension benefits. I mean, very tangible stuff, but beyond that, looking at protection from stroke, etc. Today, looking at people's, at consumer trends, it's about plant-based teas, plant-based. It's about natural teas, has a I mean, of course, tea made in the traditional way has an incredible natural influence that uh, 
really defines what it is, defines its uh, appearance, its aroma, its taste, its character. And so I think tea is, is, is finding far greater relevance than ever before. But the one thing that I can hope for is that there will be some form of premiumization. Now we are seeing that as well because there's two types of tea. Of course, there's commodity tea that grew over the years where you know, this is the stuff that you, you know, 50% off or 30% off and ultimately forced the brands and the growers to do things that uh, are not ideal. And so I think where Sri Lanka and our Ceylon tea product uh, with its premium quality and sustainability and so on are concerned, I think the future is very bright because people are realizing the importance of natural wellness. They're looking for products that have a purpose. They're, they're also realizing that there is adventure, taste adventure in tea because, I mean, that it's, it's an incredible thing that you have Camellia sinensis. You can, down by Ratnapura, you have this thick, malty intensity. You know, you, you've probably tried a lot of this. You go down to the, the hinterland, a little bit inland of Gaul, and you've mm -hmm. got this earthy, almost bitter chocolate notes and then you go up to Nurelia and you've got this light bright fragrant you know lychee like character so tea is extraordinary extraordinarily relevant and it is so diverse not only in taste but in the fact that it is naturally it is plant-based uh, healthy and so on so I think mm -hmm. that where the industry is concerned yeah sure there is a lot of competition from various beverages but tea really is quite unique and I think you know a lot of people tell me look where do you see tea and coffee going I really think tea and coffee coexist because the more I talk to people they say yes I need my morning coffee uh, I mean not me I'm, I'm sorry but uh, <laughs> I, know, like, industry, I don't I don't <laughs> I don't drink coffee but you know and they also drink tea so you know there is this traditional thing saying you know it's, it's got to be either tea or coffee I don't, I don't think that's true anymore I think people have gone beyond that and today it's uh, tea and coffee, or of course, you know, tea and many other beverages. So the competition has uh, evolved. It's, uh, it's quite harsh right now for every beverage. But I think in that sense, tea has uh, a unique relevance because of its uh, characteristics. There's a lot of parallels that can be drawn between coffee and tea, that's for sure. I, I must admit, I, I don't have heaps of tea. But I did have a, a couple last night and, and was just planning out what I was uh, wanting to ask you today. And I think it's it's been truly inspiring to hear this story and, and has made me want to do better. And, and I can't thank you enough for, for the time sitting down and having a chat today. And I can't wait to see what Dilma has in store in the future. It's been a pleasure, Tom. And I look forward to welcoming you back uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, come and uh... Uh, spend a little time on our tea gardens. We're also growing a little bit of coffee here and there because remember, prior to Ceylon tea, there was Ceylon coffee. And so, uh, yeah, we might be meeting a little bit more often then. Absolutely. We'd love to. Can't wait until I can go traveling again, that's for sure. But uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and, and uh, I look forward to catching up whenever that may be. It's been my pleasure, Tom. You have a great evening. Shall do. All right, Brady, what did you think of that one? I found this one to be unbelievably rewarding. It was. I mean, Dilhan's really got a way with words. Uh, I feel I could listen to him for hours. Uh, he's got a real voice for radio, don't you reckon? 
yeah, one of the most captivating and beautiful voices to listen to, that's for sure. It's probably the reason I didn't say much during it. I just wanted to listen and take in as much as I could. No, it was really fascinating how he just ran with it. It was great. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, and maybe it's just because we're getting similar-minded people on the podcast, but Dilhan pretty much talked at some point about something that all of our previous guests brought up for the case of Eduardo, agroforestry concepts, Jim, the notion of CSR Mirage, yep. Brett with the simple development of a third world nation, Carl with the understanding of many different aspects of an issue are needed for the whole story and not just the emotive ones. And then with Eliza, the entrepreneurial side of things and the fact that the smallest amount of education can help. It was, it was, a, it was a cool summary, I guess you could say, in a, in a different light. Mm, yeah. I, I don't know whether this is uh, we're in a thought bubble or we're onto something. I don't know. Or everyone's onto something and we're just part of the new the new shift, the new transition. Indeed. But maybe we should uh, go completely the different way now and, and try and find somebody that doesn't fit into that. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, we'll just have to keep our nose to the ground, hey? So, yeah, what did you, what did you think of the, the tea side of things and the very humble beginnings? Yeah. I mean, I'm just touching on this idea of creating value at origin. Mm. So that's something Dilhan really harped on about, which I thought was very interesting and in the way he kind of phrased it was was really good. I guess not everyone's used to the, the term origin. So I guess maybe, Tom, maybe you could explain to us what origin is and then what maybe value creation at origin means. Sure. Well, I guess origin is simply put the place where something is produced, where it's initially come from. So in this case, it would be the, the, the hillsides of Sri Lanka is, is the origin that they're speaking about. And the purity of origin is saying that only Sri Lankan grown tea is what is in a Dilmar product. And mm-hmm. moving on from that, the, the value addition, much like coffee, and, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, it, it had a colonial past. And, th- and that's how it was brought from uh, coffee, specifically from Africa and the Middle East to Asia and across to the Caribbean and down into South and Central America. And tea had a similar sort of path where the colonial culture brought it to more third world nations that had a tropical climate where they were able to grow tea. And then they would basically say to them, you should make the tea and deliver it to us as cheaply as possible. That's your job. Our job is to blend it and sell it and make more money. And so that that's the real reason that um, Merrill, who is... Dilhan's father, he, he saw that issue and he was like, well, what's the real barrier between blending something and getting more value addition in a, a country such as England or in Sri Lanka? And the barrier really was the fact that they didn't necessarily have the resources. So he brought the resources to Sri Lanka and they were able to do the value addition there and keep more money within the country and develop the, the nation further. And that's not to say that he was necessarily against the way that it happened. And, and that was something that, that Dilma, I think, has done really well is they understand what the past is, but they're not dwelling on it. They're not standing there going, hey, you know, we've been treated unfairly, like give us something. They're, they're finding solutions. They're, they're in the present, being able to forge the future that they want to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the concept of increasing the capacity, so building capacity, at origin, helping them learn to blend the teas and package the teas and bag them yep. and create a brand and then distribute the brand around the world as opposed to the commodified leaves, I think is brilliant, super clever, and it's a pr- pretty easy way in terms of difficulty to capture more value and generate better returns for the growers and everyone part of the 
you know, the tea production system in, in Sri Lanka. It's brilliant. For sure. I, I think one of the things that really helps tea in that aspect is the fact that after it gets fired at, at a plantation or at a, at a processing facility, it's in a relatively stable state where coffee, the most stable state, you still have to roast it and then you still have to grind it, you still have to brew it. Whereas a tea yep. is it already in that state where it's as stable as possible. Yeah, it's at like a just add water, like a good cordial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like a good cordial. But it, it's like saying in the wine industry, it's like, okay, the job is to make the grapes and then we're going to send it to another country where they're going to process it all. and mm-hmm. Ferment it. And- fer- yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm do all the processing that wine needs to, to go through and then mm. sell it for absorbent margins and make all that money. Whereas yeah. what, and, and translating it back to what Dilma does is they're basically saying, well, let's keep those grapes here. Let's process it here and then let's sell it ourselves. And mm. so that, that obviously has challenges because you don't necessarily have those resources to begin with, but all the infrastructure, it definitely helps um, find a, a substantive way to change the cycle that it always has been. Uh, to mm. something that they, well, at least Dilma and Sri Lanka has benefited from. Yeah. I'm going to get a bit nerdy on us, Tom, but no in Adam Smith's famous book, you know, Wealth of Nations, uh, there's this concept of the invisible hand that gets thrown around, often misunderstood, if I might add. So the concept is that a wealthy British industrialist, you know, Adam Smith was from Britain at the time, at the peak of British industrialism, and I guess the pre-rise of it too. Smith theorized that the the capitalist, the man who owns the factories, wouldn't seek cheaper labor in other nations and, and cut his labor force. So he wouldn't seek to reduce his cost and increase his profit by trading abroad or moving his production abroad because of the invisible hand. And the invisible hand would be his love of country, his um, love of his fellow countrymen, and his desire to see uh, the people of Britain or whatever country it is that the industrialist or capitalist is in, to see his people thrive, flourish, and grow with him. So that was the Smith theory of the invisible hand. So now, you know, in this modern economy that we're in, where we're in a global economy and we're constantly finding the cheapest labor force, the cheapest way to produce things, there is not really much allegiance to the nation we live in. Uh, I'm not calling for nationalism, but just following on Smith's theory of a wealth, a wealthy nation, is that um, you know what Dilma is doing is that he's revisiting the invisible hand and he's trying to increase the value and share in the wealth with his fellow countrymen, as opposed to exporting it out and and leaving the his fellow countrymen without. So it's really fantastic to see that these this old economic theory is actually beginning to be realized once more yeah for sure and going on to something i do know a little bit more about uh, the parallel can be drawn in coffee producing nations they're drinking more coffee now they're starting to to realize that oh okay if we drink more coffee here and if we process more and we value add here we're able to make a better price we're able to just in general develop the internal economy that's right, yeah. Keep, keeping the production local, as local as possible, while still participating in a global economy is is really a lovely concept. Indeed, we need to do more yeah, of it. That's it. Um, I guess the next thing that I, I, I wrote down, I, was, I had my notebook open listening to it, and that was the role of the corporation in the 21st century. He was quite critical of you know, the corporation 
as opposed to a family business. Mm. It was really interesting to hear about the conflict between the modern corporation and its need to justify its existence to its shareholders. Um, in Australia, we've got this statute, the S181, which is obliges all directors of a company to maximise the profits for its shareholders specifically, despite there being so many stakeholders, the the real focus of a director, their legal obligation is to their shareholder. And then Dilhan juxtaposed this to the needs of the modern world. And, you know, we're facing so many different crises on different fronts. He said that that perhaps he kind of challenged that this this structure perhaps isn't fit for purpose anymore. And then he went on to describe the role of the family business in today's society. And that's predominantly to have empathy. Uh, he talked about during COVID, you know, having to save jobs and his, he, he felt morally obligated to do so. And he was very proud of himself that, that he and his family business were able to save so many jobs and, and not uh, and protect their people, not lay off people. Whereas a corporation would have less of a obligation to do that or is no legal obligation to do that really, uh, especially if it didn't maximize the profits for shareholders, if they would actually be in the wrong uh, had it been a corporation. What, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I... I uh, I also had this down as as one of my notes, and and he brought it up beautifully, and and I can definitely relate to it. Is the humane side of a sort of business that doesn't necessarily put shareholders maximizing their value at the top of the list for a family business such as Dilmar and and some that I've been involved in. It's really, and this goes to actually Dilmar's um, one of their mottos that they have is. Business is a matter of human service mm. and that there shouldn't be any business that doesn't benefit humans in some way, shape or form. I mean, and if you're not just to trying, clarify, shareholders are humans. Just to- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's exactly what you're talking about. He's challenging that idea of what actually is benefit for a human. Mm. Is it money? Is it wealth? Or and, and he brought up this point perfectly with, his father at the age of 91, the most satisfaction that he gets is going and visiting all of the foundation centers and, and seeing the people's lives that they're really impacting. That's what they find to be the most uh, rewarding part of having a business such as Dilma. Of course. You know, people will be listening and, and thinking, you know, yes, he can do this and it's fantastic that he does, but he only can do it because of the success of his main core business, producing tea, packaging it, yeah. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. Like they have a, a very complementary balance of business driven and social mm. and environmental impact driven as well. That like it, it takes a company to be significantly good at something to to build it to the size mm. that it is, yeah. and, and such a global company that 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 really shouldn't be understated in all of this. But uh, to be able to give back and to be able to have uh, a vision and a mission at the core of it to help other people really does uh, make things a lot more rewarding. Yeah. And and maybe maybe we can just riff off that a little bit more. Traditionally, that there's there's kind of a history of CSR uh, and it began with philanthropy. So you'd have a, a corporation or a business and it was profit maximizing to the hilt. It would do it was ruthless, ruthless corporation doing anything it could to, you know, generate more value, more profit. And, and then whatever they had at the end of the year, they would then put aside, say, 10% or some arbitrary number for philanthropic purposes, you know, good causes and things. Um, so that was the kind of the origins of CSR in, in the West, at least. And then it kind of slowly progressed into 
CSR we have today where, you know, a corporation will have a team of, of people throughout the year doing these good causes, perhaps mirage, perhaps not. And then we're now moving towards this kind of an elevated version of CSR where it's the entire business is built around being good for humanity, good for the environment, as opposed to being ruthless and then kind of tithing away 10% or whatever it is um, to kind of undo the damage you've caused. You're now building a business that is generating positive outcomes through every action, as well as having these non-profit driven activities on the side or even uh, to the side, not on the side. I guess it also comes back to the way that the MJF Foundation is trying to develop people with dignity. It's not about saying, here's, I don't know, a thousand rupees, go help yourself, go buy some food, go put some clothes on your back. They're helping them in ways that, it goes back to the old saying, if you give a man a fish, they eat for a day. If you teach a man to fish, they can eat for a lifetime. And that, that's exactly what they're they're doing as well in in the MJF Foundation. Is they're they're not they're not just giving people money. They're not just helping people out of a situation, giving them food, you know, just giving them whatever resources they may need. But they're actually teaching them how to live, how to become a better impact on society. You know, the people who went through the vocational training, the the example of of the the ladies coming in and and cooking that they've actually made a significant difference on their lives by learning how to fit in with becoming an entrepreneur and i think that's also a, a very interesting point to make is that your csr component of a business can't just be all right take it that's it we're going to give it to you but also to pave the way so that they are better off not just for one day, but for the rest of their life. Yeah, that's a definitely a very noble pursuit. It'd be interesting to see how corporations begin to adapt and I guess the pressure to do better uh, and be less superficial becomes sufficiently great that that does become the norm. But I guess I, I guess there's another question of like we could we could sit around and talk about what, what's the best way to do CSR. Uh, you could you know, riff on that for days, but... I guess the real core of the question is the modern corporation, is it fit for purpose? I think that's a really awesome question. And I don't know how you'd go about answering it. I guess you could, you might start with what are the problems that we have and are those problems that we lack wealth? If, if that is the answer, then yes, let's profit maximize and make everyone a shareholder. I mean, that, that could be a solution we look at. But I mean, I, I don't think... We're at, at that stage, at least in the developed world. Can't speak for Sri Lanka, yeah, no. obviously. But here in Australia, I, I don't think we lack wealth. No. Uh, and so I, I don't know whether the corporation is fit for purpose anymore. Maybe it is a, a dinosaur. I don't know. Yeah. It's also very tough to like write off something that's yeah so prevalent, such as a corporation. Yeah, important too. I mean... There's a reason that exists. Definitely, There's a reason that that it that it has grown to be what it is today. Mm, but should That's it continue sure. to grow? I don't know. Sure, keep evolving it. Mm. I mean, the, the the endless pursuit of growth is is kind of built into it. Yeah, um, yeah. And what what stood out to me really was the idea that a consuming nation has all of these sustainable demands and. You know, we're talking about like pay your employees more, make sure they have all this clean water, make sure they have 
uh, a shelter that's suitable for them for your workers but really they don't necessarily enable it because of the, the mindset around price I, I i still go into clothes shops and look for the cheapest price first and go to restaurants and I, I sometimes look okay what's the cheapest option that i can get here but it's really a detrimental factor on what's happening in a, a nation that is producing those goods or is manufacturing those goods or or really can't uh, at the same time, keep up with your demands because you've simply got this mindset around price. I thought that was a super interesting point. Yeah, yeah, price is a really sticky issue. It's so so true, you know, that we've got these huge expectations of how much value and benefit a product and a business around it creates for its employees and for this for the world we, we live in, and then we then expect that to come at some astronomically low prices. Yeah, it's such a contradiction and yeah. I don't know how to solve it. I mean, I, I, I wrote this piece. It was one of these papers where the lecturer, uh, Ben Neville, thank you, Ben, he, he gave us this task of just writing a paper about the business of business is to pursue profit, discuss. And I wrote, ended up writing this paper about how the you know the pursuit of profit leads to a war on price because that's where the mass market is. It was at least I kind of that was my thesis, um, and I kind of came to the conclusion that the only real way um, to overcome this battle around price is instead to make it a battle around value, like how much value can you get out of a product, and so you can start comparing things not on price but on the value, because mm. uh, value is so hard to quantify when there is so much marketing trickery and kind of. The, the different ways that we're influenced to purchase and persuaded, there's little discussion about value. So if you start making a market for value, so say you're at the shops and there's product A, product B, product A is a dollar and product B is a dollar fifty. How do you work out where that fifty cents or fifty pence or whatever it is, where, where's the value in that? Like what value do you get for, for paying more, as opposed to what value do you lose by paying less? So if there was more transparency about you know, this $1 item, you know, you're contributing to a, a cycle of poverty and a cycle of um, struggle. Or this $1.50 one, you're actually contributing to a, a cycle of, you know, improved living standards, a cycle of better uh, working conditions, a cycle of more profits to the grower. You know, if there's a value add battle, so you start having a battle to increase the value and, and, and not be the lowest value option not the lowest price option. Sure, absolutely. I, I think that in theory that works fantastically well, but what's to say that somebody isn't exploiting that fact in the supply chain? Like if they're able to provide marketing or prove the fact that they might be helping and add value that way, but in reality they're taking much more of the cut than the people who actually deserve it or who are the least fortunate in the chain. Yeah, definitely. The, the chain creates corruption corruption in, in the loosest sense possible corruption in terms of siphoning off value that should go to different parts more equally yeah definitely i mean i don't know how you'd you'd kind of make the system but i feel like that would be a better system for sure i agree well pretty that was a, a super interesting podcast I, i'm not gonna lie and can't wait for the masses to hear it the, the millions of people across the world millions <laughs> if only <laughs> If only. Um, but yeah, it's exciting to have this one done and, and we're looking forward to the future and got a few things in the works. So I'm excited. Yeah, Tom, it was a great episode. 
yeah, congrats on 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 getting it through, and I'm uh, really pleased to um, have heard it, and I I quite enjoyed it as well. So hopefully we can keep up the the quality, uh, the value yeah. in these podcasts, and uh, keep producing ripper content like this. Absolutely. But in the meantime, uh, have a good week, and uh, we'll catch you next time. We'll do. Alrighty, <laughs> Tommy. Have a good one, mate. Ciao. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cordial. We will be back next time with a brand new guest to mix and contemplate more Cordial conversations about the world, the people in it, and their work. If you happen to be enjoying our dulcet tones, listen to more Cordial conversations on all major platforms like Spotify. And if you still can't get enough of us, check out our website and Instagram at cordial.live. The link will be in the description. 